As you're finding Romans chapter 13, one of the benefits of regular church attendance, regular Sunday morning attendance, hearing a sermon, is that it forces you to consider things, deep and important things that otherwise we would just ignore. Because life is busy and there are other concerns that really require almost all of our attention just to make it through a week. So here we are again on a Sunday morning, and here I am again to draw your attention to something very, very important, something that I doubt many of you have considered this week. Maybe some of you are super saints, and you have been thinking about this this week, and I commend you, but if you're more like me, this is not something that you think about regularly. But as we're going to see, it is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important. So... The sermon in a sentence, in case you're just extremely exhausted and need to phase out immediately after I say this, I want to draw your attention to a fact and then a corresponding command about how we should respond to that fact. The fact is, Jesus Christ is coming back and we should live accordingly. Jesus Christ is coming back. If he is at all reliable, if he is at all trustworthy, if we can depend on anything he said to us, we have to accept the fact that he is going to return. You are going to experience it. I am going to experience it. We may experience it as uh, waking dead men and women, or we may experience it before our lifetime is over. He is coming back. We are going to experience it. We need to live accordingly. Okay. So for those of you who had a late night and just need to pass out now, I see your sleepy faces. You got the gist of it. So I'm going to read to you our passage for this morning. It's Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Just remain seated this morning. I want you just to be able to uh, soak this in. So this is Romans 13, beginning at verse 11. Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, we need you now to do your supernatural miracle work through your word in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Awaken in us a sense of the reality of this fact that Jesus is coming flip some switch in our hearts that we will remain aware of this reality. Or do your work in our hearts this morning so that we could live in anticipation of his return. Or help me now to serve your people well. Make this clear to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, every passing second nudges us closer to that moment when we will experience Jesus' return. You're closer now than you were when you first came and sat in on that pew. 
every passing second, it becomes closer. Jesus is coming back. Paul writes, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So this reality that Jesus is coming back in, in God's thinking as he inspired his word through Paul calls for a certain sort of wakefulness from us. We need to wake up. There's some sort of a, a spiritual slumber that we are prone to and the fact that Jesus is returning means that we need to wake up. So to get our minds in this mode of thinking, how did it go for you this morning when you had to wake up? Was it hard on any of you? Did any of you sleep in? Did that cause stress? When I need to wake up, I have to, I don't have an alarm clock by my side of the bed. I have my cell phone. I have to set my alarm, then I have to go put it in the bathroom by the shower so that I have to actually physically get up and go in there to make it quiet down. And there's been one morning that Meredith says, I slept through that for a long time before she finally had to help the alarm clock in waking me up. There was a while there, um, I took a class in seminary this last semester, and I was determined to do it in such a way that it didn't affect church, my responsibilities here, and it didn't affect the family at all. I was trying to like hide my, my work so that it didn't cause any you know, inconvenience to any, anything or anybody. So I was trying to get up at 5 a.m. to do all my studies before anybody woke up. Some of you probably get up at 5 a.m., and that's no big deal. For me, that's a really big deal to try to get up at 5 a.m. And for at least a week, I did really well. It's hard to awaken sometimes. But the more important the occasion is that you're waking to, the more important it is that you do wake up. Paul is saying, we are in a critical hour now. Jesus came, we just celebrated you know, his first advent, we celebrated Christmas. He came, he lived, he died in payment for our sins. He arose from the dead. He gave the great commission and then he ascended into heaven. And he left us with this promise that he's coming back. So we are in this critical hour now. The night is far gone, the day is here. We need to live as though the day is here that Christ is going to return. Now this, for me, as I studied this, I was alarmed by how remote this fact is to me, really. I know it's not that way for everyone in here, but for me, the reality that Jesus is going to return is a very remote, distant fact that's disconnected from my daily living and my emotions. I was studying this passage, just it almost felt academic. So I've been praying about how can we you know, feel the, the weight and the magnitude that he is going to return. And I don't know, I think it has to be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit's in our hearts. But I want to read to you a description of what it's going to be like. So you can maybe imagine it a little bit better as we read. There are a number of places that describe it. I'm going to read to you Jesus' own description of it in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. You don't have to try to flip there. Just try to visualize what Jesus says is going to happen when he returns. From Matthew 24. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, 
And the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great might. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's hard to visualize. It's hard to imagine that this is a prophecy of a real coming event. And we don't know when it's going to happen. I know some folks have tried to guess when it's going to happen. Uh, As I'm going to mention to you in a little bit, our whole denomination actually has roots with a man who tried to guess when it was going to happen. So we're Advent Christians. Advent means his coming. But we don't know when it's going to happen. You know, Miss Margaret Pig has told me, and I think many of you, that she feels confident that it's going to happen in her lifetime. And she, I believe, is going to turn 99 this year. You know, she might be right, she might be wrong. I think her spirit of anticipation is right. So let's just say it happens on a Thursday. What were you doing last Thursday of this week? Just say mid-morning Thursday, what were you doing? Picture what you were doing. And then imagine in the midst of whatever it was you were doing, some of you are like, I cannot remember what I was doing 30 minutes ago. Whatever you typically are doing on a mid-morning on a Thursday. Imagine you're, you're doing whatever it is at work or at home with the kids or you're driving, I don't know. And the sun is suddenly darkened. And it's as if all the, everything in the sky just goes crazy. The stars fall from the heavens. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means we just won't be able to see them. Or I don't know if that means they're actually going to like, things are going to crash to the earth. I mean, there's stars bigger than earth, I think. So I don't think, I don't know exactly what that means. It says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then there'll be something that appears. It's the sign of the son of man. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's going to be global. It's going to be catastrophic. All the tribes of the earth are going to take notice of this. It's going to cause great fear and mourning. We don't know what to picture. It's, it's all, we're going to, all we know is that it will be characterized by great power and great glory. So your mid-morning Thursday, imagine that that just happens, whatever it looks like. Does that help it become a little more concrete? Because one day that will happen. Maybe it'll be this coming Thursday. So the point of this passage is, let's just say it is this coming Thursday. And let's just say you know it. Let's say God decides to inspire through me this prophecy. It's going to be this Thursday. It's not, I mean, it's not happening, obviously. But how would you live between now and that Thursday? What would you do differently than you would do if I hadn't told you that he's coming back Thursday? See, whatever that difference is, is the way that we ought to just live, period. Because he is coming back. We don't know when. It's going to be like a thief in the night. It might be at night. It might be while you're sleeping. It might be tonight while you're sleeping. Think about that as you put your head on your pillow tonight. I know, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, if we're honest, 
It, it is the great unknown. I mean, we love Jesus. We know we want Jesus. But we have never experienced anything like this. Ever. No one on earth has ever experienced anything like what this will be like. And it is coming. So, it's probably right to be a little apprehensive. It's going to be different. But the point for now is, it, it is happening. Jesus is coming. Coming. Every passing second nudges us closer to the moment when this will happen. Which leads me to the next point. Paul is saying that this fact that Jesus is coming back calls for a certain kind of wakefulness from us. A certain sort of alertness. It is creating an urgency for us to be alert in a specific way. I'm going to read you what he says and we'll unpack it. Pick up uh, with me. We'll just start in verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. So historically, the response to a clear understanding and acceptance that Jesus is coming back has been communication. The logic is Jesus is coming back We don't know exactly when, but we know it's happening. So we need to tell everybody we can about Jesus Christ so as many people as possible will be ready and will be saved. That that is, I believe, our whole denomination's purpose as Advent Christians. And it's right and it's good, but this isn't what Paul is talking about. Right here in this passage, Paul isn't saying that the fact that Jesus is going to return should awaken evangelistic urgency. It's not an evangelistic wakefulness that he's talking about. It's a moral wakefulness. It's a moral urgency. Something about the fact that Jesus is coming makes it even more urgent that we seriously apply ourselves to our personal holiness in preparation for his return. So think again about Jesus coming back this Thursday. He's coming back Thursday, 10, 17 a.m. Morally speaking, what do you need to change between now and then? Before you're face-to-face with Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. I told you that our denomination has roots in a man named William Miller. There's a lot of folks that I believe that have roots in William Miller and the Millerite movement. But he, I think it was 1831, terrible with numbers and dates, it might be a little off. I think it was 1831, after a serious study of his Bible, especially Daniel and Revelation, the very prophetic books, he thought he had pegged the date. He thought it was going to be in 1843 or 1844. Okay, and you have to give him credit. He, he popularized that view very well. Many people believed it. I mean, they, they generated newspapers to get the word out. You need to be ready. Jesus Christ is coming back on these dates. Of course, he didn't. They call that the great disappointment. You know, we have the great, the great uh, commands, the great commission, and this was the great disappointment. They really thought he was coming, and he didn't show up. But that spirit of anticipation has remained and it is at the very core of our DNA as a denomination. We don't know when he's coming, but we know that he's coming. 
And this is uh, a lot what fuels our world missions focus as a denomination. People need to know there has to be at least as high of an emphasis in our denomination on personal holiness if we really believe that Jesus is coming back. Scripturally, that is at least as important as getting the word out. And I'll have to be honest with you, part of me doesn't understand why that's the case because all through Romans, Paul has been saying, it's not about your personal endeavor to be holy. It's about what Jesus did to save you. And yet here he's saying, but Jesus is coming, so you better get your act together, morally. I've really wrestled with that this week. Why is that our emphasis? Why is that what becomes so urgent, knowing that Jesus is coming back? Um, I think we get a hint back in Matthew 24, soon after what he, he had just said, when I described to you what it's going to be like. He says this, starting in verse 45 of Matthew 24. He's, just, he's talking about you need to be ready. You don't know when I'm coming. And then he says, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Let's see, did I skip something here? Yeah, that's how he begins it. So who's the good servant? Blessed is the servant whom the master finds doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. The analogy Jesus is using is that of a a household where there are servants. Think uh, Downton Abbey. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? A little better than the movies. So some people watch PBS or BBC or whatever. Okay, anyway, Downton Abbey is this British show where it's this house where there's uh, the uh, upper level of folks that live there and the lower level is the servants and they serve all the meals and everything. At any rate, the analogy that Jesus is using is that the master of the house has left for a while and he's going to return, but the servants don't know when he's going to return. And he's left them with instructions about how to maintain the house and how to operate. And he's saying when, when the master comes back, the servants that he finds doing what he asked them to do, he's going to honor. And the servants that he finds not doing what he told them to do and doing bad things, he's going to dishonor. This is sort of the idea. When Christ returns, it's going to be brought out into broad daylight the way we've been living. It's going to become painfully obvious between us, the servants, and our master the true condition of our hearts and the true condition of our living. There's nothing that will be able to be hidden anymore. So Paul says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is still with that idea of waking up. You know, none of you are in your pajamas right now unless you just really wear nice pajamas. You all woke up and you took off your night clothes and you put on your church clothes. And that's an important thing. I'm glad you did that. In this analogy of Paul's, you know, salvation, the return of Christ is nearing. 
and it's like the sun rising and it's time to get up and it's time to get out of bed and it's time to just take off all the garb, all the clothes associated with our slumber, all the clothes associated with what we have been doing in the dark. And to put on new clothes, but they're not just clothes, it's armor. The armor of light. So he's about to give you several examples of the deeds of darkness that we need to take off because Christ is coming. Before we get to that though, you need to know that it's not easy. That you don't get up and you don't take off your night clothes and put on fuzzy slippers to do this task of Christian holiness. It's battle. The Christian life is not a life of sleep. It's a life of battle. So Jesus is coming back. Wake up. Let's cast off the deeds of darkness and let's put on the armor of light. So what is he talking about? What is What are deeds of darkness? Well, he outlines them. And so I'm going to teach you by his outline. Now, some of the things in his outline are not the things that I usually want to preach to the sweet old ladies in our congregation. But it's in God's inspired word, so I have to believe that it's important that I do. So let's read what he says, starting in, uh, let's back up to halfway through 12 to get a running start into it. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So here's the bullet points, the, the examples he gives to his church. Okay? The first one. This is not a topic that I usually plan to bring up at Doolin's Grove. But this was a topic very important to the Roman church. See, in Rome, by this point, the pagan worship of their gods had gotten so uh, blatant and so public and so gratuitous that these kinds of things were going on. So they had this one god, probably going to mispronounce it, Bacchus or Bacchus. And there was a festival devoted to this god called Bacchanalia. The whole point of this festival was to get extremely drunk, eat a lot of food, and then just partake in just unbridled sexual immorality on a mass scale. We can't imagine anything like that happening today. But today we have different things. And I feel compelled to bring this up because of the statistics related to pornography. I know that there are people in this room that struggle with it. So we don't have bacchanalia. What we have is isolated, private versions of it. You know, with the onslaught of the internet, the things that are available to us would have been unimaginable to these Romans. You need to know that partaking in any kind of sin like that is a deed of darkness. And Jesus is coming back. If this is a hang-up for you, you need to deal with it. And I'm going to explain how in just a moment. But right now, he's just pointing out what deeds of darkness are. Drunkenness. Drunkenness is a deed of darkness. So, there are people... I I don't really know exactly where all of you stand in terms of alcohol consumption. There are people who... They call them teetotalers. You just don't drink. Any consumption of alcohol is a sin. 
You know, really the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of ground for that position that I'm aware of. But it's very clear that drunkenness is a deed of darkness. So, no, it doesn't say any sip of alcohol is sin, but, you know, how many sips before it becomes drunkenness, which is a deed of darkness. So I think at this, at this point where it's just, you know, a glass of wine or something, I think that, honestly, from what I understand scripturally, is a gray area that you need to wrestle through in your conscience with God, if that's okay for you. Uh, I think if you have some history with alcoholism or in your family, that you need to be very careful with it. But as soon as it gets to drunkenness, it's a deed of darkness. And that is something to take very seriously. So I, I, you won't hear me prescribe to you never drink any alcohol. Because I, I think that's legalism. What you need to know is that drunkenness is a very serious sin that can be extremely destructive. So any interaction you have with alcohol, you need to take very seriously. Consider prayerfully. Make sure your conscience is clear about it. So he gave that example, that specific example of orgies, what I really think pertains specifically to that bacchanalia uh, practice that maybe some of the Christians were partaking in. And then he throws out sexual immorality in general. So I have to believe that this area of sexual immorality is a big, important area where we tend to succumb to deeds of darkness. So again, for, for you, as your pastor who loves you, if you are participating in deeds of darkness related to sexual immorality, this is for you. God is speaking to you right now. You need to wake up and you need to cast it off. Sensuality, uh, we talked about that recently. I think last week that was in our list. Um, the senses are, you know, the things that we feel, touch, uh, feeling and touching, I think are actually the same thing. Taste, see. Sensuality is just um, giving ourselves over to what feels good, what tastes good, what looks good. Now, here, here are the two that really stand out and are interesting to me. Quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling and jealousy are in the same list as orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality. So do not think that if up to this point in the list you're clean, but you are quarrelsome and you are all eaten up with jealousy, that you're ready for Christ to come back and be face to face to him. Our interactions with people, our relationships with people are extremely important. So maybe your deeds of darkness don't pertain to these first three things we mentioned, but maybe it pertains to how you relate to people. Maybe you're contentious. Maybe you're often amidst strife interpersonally. You know, if you find yourself often at odds with people, the common denominator is you. You're probably the quarrelsome one. There are quarrelsome folks. If you're not one of the quarrelsome folks, it'll only be occasionally that you get into quarrels with people. If you're all the time, often getting in quarrels with people, you are the quarrelsome one. You need to cast off that darkness. Jealousy, uh, within that idea of jealousy are all kinds of things. Uh, That's the root of a lot of discontentment. Um, The reason why many of us aren't happy with what we already have. The reason many of us can't be happy for others who have things that we wish we had. This is a subtle thing. This is a very invisible thing. 
I can't know if you're struggling with jealousy and you can't really know if I am. But it too is a deed of darkness that needs to be cast away, cast off before Christ returns. So what's the alternative then? Let's say that you really are struggling with some of these deeds of darkness. Whichever they may be, maybe all of them, maybe you're in really bad shape. What should you do? What alternative does Paul give us, or does God give us through Paul in this paragraph? But what he doesn't say is, stop it, period, end of the subject. He says, cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Which that's a real abstract concept, armor of light. What does that mean? Well, I think he clarifies it in verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're crawling around in this um, garbage, these deeds of darkness, the step you need to make to climb out of it is a step into the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a step into legalistic um, self-improvement plans. Not a step into um, just willpower, but a step toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The armor that we wear in a world as tempting as ours is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've been struggling with some of these sins and you've just never had any victory over it, maybe it's because you've just been trying really hard to not do this instead of trying really hard to turn from this towards something much better, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master. Lord means the one who has absolute authority over you. Him being our Lord means that we listen to what he says and apply ourselves to responding to it and obeying. So if you're struggling with all these deeds of darkness and you think that you've really been trying to stop, but you've not had this open in front of you seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, no wonder you've not had any victory. So Jesus is coming. Every passing second nudges us closer to the day that we will experience the return of Jesus Christ. And this fact makes urgent our task of personal holiness in real specific ways. My prayer has been that God would be working in our hearts already to convict us of some of these sins, some of these deeds of darkness, and free us from them and enable us to cast them off. So we cast off the deeds of darkness in preparation for Christ's return, and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like you would if you were having really, really high caliber company over to your house. They were going to come over at 9.30 in the morning. You would get up. You would take off the, the shameful night clothes. And you would put on something that would make you presentable. What makes Christians presentable? The Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try to put anything else on in preparation for his return. So... Paul gives us this one last little practical tip. And that's how he ends this passage. So that's how I'll end my sermon. At the end of verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So I believe that God really wants us to specifically and in a concrete way tackle specific sins that we wrestle with in response to this passage. And I think, he, I think that because he gives us this real practical advice. So cast off these deeds of darkness, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a little tip. 
make no provision for your flesh. Your flesh is going to desire deeds of darkness. Because your flesh has not been glorified yet. Don't make provision for it. So, two points I want to make about this as I wrap it up. Just because you're Christian does not mean that your flesh is going to stop desiring deeds of darkness. Don't feel as though you are some freak because you do love Jesus, yet some part of you really wants this stuff, this dark stuff. Some part of you revels in your jealousy, in your, um, what's the word that just escaped my, my, my brain? Quarreling, in your sexual immorality, in your drunkenness. Don't feel like you're a freak because some part of you still craves that. We're told that the flesh will have desires. So here's the tip. Don't make provision for your flesh. So, I ran across this old saying. If you're an alcoholic, don't hitch up your mule in front of the saloon. That's so out of character for me to give a saloon illustration. I couldn't even get it out. If your deeds of darkness that you need to cast off have to do with sexual immorality, what supply lines do you need to sever so that you will stop making provision for your flesh? You know, I had a, one of my, my very favorite professor in seminary in Wake Forest was named Dr. Catanzaro. Everybody called him Dr. Cat. I mentioned him before. He's a short, uh, robust <laughs> Italian guy and just very blunt and brusque. And um, he had a son who was my same age in college at that time. And um, he told us one day that he made a decision for his family. They weren't going to take beach vacations. They weren't going to take beach vacations until his son had grown up. Because he could see that he was taking his son to a beach where there were a bunch of almost completely nude women. And he was like, that's... That is like the worst thing a father can do for his boy if he's really trying to help him cast off deeds of darkness. That's like taking an alcoholic to Oktoberfest, the big beer festival. And you're like, that's, that's silly. I'm not going to give up beach vacations just so I can cut off provision to my flesh, just so I can cast off deeds of darkness, just so I can put on the Lord Jesus Christ, just so I can be ready when he returns, which could be any minute. It's really not silly. Now, I'm not saying you need not to go to the beach anymore. I'm saying you need to seriously consider your areas of weakness and how you can cut off provision to those fleshly desires. You know, it may have more to do with sensuality. Maybe it's, it's more in the area of food or something. You know, your trips to the grocery store are, is the source of provision for that fleshly desire. So take that more seriously. Plan that better. This is just real practical stuff. So I don't know what it is for you, so I can't give you enough examples to hit everything. But you need to do this work of praying through this. How can you stop making provision for your flesh? Now I have to close with this because I want to make sure this never becomes unclear. Our work to develop personal holiness does not save us and does not make us acceptable to God. His work in Jesus Christ has already done that. But the fact remains, we will see him face to face. 
And we want to be ready. We want to be good servants. So every passing second nudges us closer to the moment when Christ will return. This makes urgent our task for personal holiness. So, cast off your deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please do your work in our hearts so that we really acknowledge and accept the fact that Jesus is coming back. Or help us to live every day in light of that fact, not in fear or terror, but in urgency about our task. Help us to remember that this Christian life is not a nap. It's a battle. Show us exactly for each one of us what it means and what it looks like to put on the armor of light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's painful, but we need you, your Holy Spirit, to convict us of our sins here. We don't want to just be confused and and feel vaguely guilty about things we want. We need clear conviction from the Holy Spirit so that we know what sins we need to cast off and confess and repent of and how to cut off the provision to those desires of our flesh. We just need a whole lot of your work in our hearts here. Lord, I thank you that we have all these promises that you will do it. So I'm excited to see what you're going to do in my life and in the life of your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.